Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week we speak with the Sunday Times editor, Emma Tucker. We also speak with the executive editor of Noema, a beautiful yearly title published by the Berggren Institute. And we welcome back to the show Doro Globus from David's Farmer Books on her first children's title. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. We start the show with Emma Tucker, editor-in-chief from one of the most renowned British papers, The Sunday Times. Emma was one of our panelists at our Quality of Life conference in Athens last week. She was joined on stage by our editorial director, Tyler Brulé, to discuss the future of media and also a bit more about her role at the paper. Let's have a listen. The Sunday Times occupies a very special position in sort of British media landscape and also in the, the culture of Sundays in Britain. So it's a, it's a very big beast. It's got this tremendous reputation. Uh, it used to have a slogan that was the Sunday Times is the Sunday Papers and it still very much thinks of itself in that way. So I was following in the footsteps of some very big names, former editors, Harold Evans, Andrew Neil. And I think the newspaper establishment feels very proprietorial towards the Sunday Times. It's famous not just in the UK, but abroad for having broken some really big stories. Uh, the FIFA files was a Sunday Times exclusive. Back in the day, they broke the story of the thalidomide scandal. So it's got this tremendous reputation. And when I took it on in, with some trepidation, <laughs> I basically confronted a paper that was very living off this reputation, but was almost entirely print-focused. And I think to some extent its reputation had allowed it to get away with that. So I quickly surmised that um, we needed to switch that focus, because for all that people still enjoy a Sunday print newspaper, I think you only need to look around you to see that that's not where the future lies. You're talking about a transformation, obviously it existed as digital. But what did you want to do? Because there is something interesting. If you're a subscriber to, let's say, the overall Times brand as well, it's not also in this ticker world as well. There, it really sort of chooses its moments. It's not just breaking news willy-nilly. So, and I think that's fascinating because somehow it has that presence of print without the sort of weird, you know, addictive nature where we know many news sites, you know, they're, you know they're, they're kind of dormant for a long time, but they're just trying to push a lot of crap out there the whole time. So how much was that part of a, of a strategy also from a woman who, of course, really started in print, has inky fingers some days? Tyler, if only you knew the answer I could give to that question, because you've really hit on a philosophical challenge that is affecting all titles, but also internally for us. So when we relaunched our digital edition, originally we, put up, we were one of the first newspapers to put up a paywall. And um, when we did that, we realized we had to adapt the product. We had to give people something that they were willing to pay for, given that there was a lot else out there that was free. And when we spoke to readers, what we discovered was what you just described. They don't want to be overwhelmed by endless, small updates to stories. Not least because, as I said before, you can get that for free anywhere. So we came up with this idea of digital editions. So we'd have the morning edition, a midday update, 
and then a five o'clock update. And our readers quickly got used to this. You could watch the traffic trends and you could see that they would come in and read stories, you know, in, in a rather like we, I guess we used to read newspapers. But at the moment, there's a, there's a bit of a, a tussle going on internally. <laughs> I can <laughs> which, imagine yeah, some. <laughs> which, I needn't go into uh, necessarily about whether we should be doing more of the breaking news because newspaper, uh, journalists hate the idea of being last. And journalists think that they make the big mistake of thinking that readers are like them, and they're not. Readers, by and large, are like, you know, they're people with other things to do in their lives. They're not glued to the news the whole time. It's a slightly different challenge for me because obviously on a Sunday, there's not so much news. We've had quite a lot recently. A lot of people have died on Saturdays, which makes for interesting, interesting times. But um, by and large, it's not the same challenge. So we can focus much more on high quality, distinctive, exclusive stories. So tell me the nature of, of the newsroom as well. And I don't want to, we don't have to go into rolling heads and how much. <laughs> you had to, to shift things when you got there. But you know, we've had conversations about, you know, oddly at a time when you think people are pluckier, et cetera, you've got young journalists coming in. A lot of them are just, they're not old bores, they're young bores, uh, that there is, a, and we're gonna talk later today a lot about the need for dialogue and discussion. But you know, the Times and the Sunday Times, you're pretty plucky right now. I mean, there's, <laughs> there, you know, there is a point of view, um, you, you definitely push it. You see there's an engagement with, with your readership. Of course, that is, that is a strategy as well, but how complicated is it today? I mean, do you, is there moments you're sort of cowering behind uh, your desk thinking, here comes the deluge, dare we say it? Or is the newsroom largely sailing in the same direction? Well, certainly most Sundays I sit cowering under the covers, not daring to look at my phone for fear of who I may or may not have upset. But it's interesting, on the, the new, what I thought was important when I got there was First of all, I, I did a wholesale refresh of most of the department heads. I've only got two department heads still in place from when I took over, the head of design and the head of sport. The others, I've changed them all because I thought it was really important to refresh this newsroom, which really hadn't been touched very much the last 10 years. But then I thought it was important to get everybody excited and, and sort of make a statement about what kind of newspaper we were going to be. But it happened sort of by mistake <laughs> in that Obviously, I'd only been in place for about five weeks, and then the pandemic happened. And after about, I think around about the end of March, we were sitting, having a discussion in the newsroom. And it, things were really bad. You know, we were going to go into a lockdown. People were taking matters into their own hand. And I said to them, where the hell is Boris Johnson? We suddenly occurred to us, we'd seen a bit of him. He'd won the election in December. There'd been a bit of flag-waving and rah-rahing at the end of January over actual Brexit. And then he'd sort of disappeared. There was a rumor of an engagement, baby, I can't remember, all sorts of things. So we thought, well, where the hell is he? Let's find out. So rather than getting our political team onto it, I decided to put the Insight team. And Insight is a Sunday Times brand. They're a, a group of investigative journalists whose job it is to really uncover stories. But I thought it'd be interesting to get them onto politics so they wouldn't get sucked into the usual sort of political bandwagon. And a few weeks later, they produced this piece of reportage about what had been going on behind the scenes. <laughs> so I read it and I thought, oh, that's, that's really interesting. It's, you know, sort of interesting to find out that 
so-and-so was doing this and Boris Johnson was nowhere to be seen and you know there was all this chaos nobody knew what was happening there was no pandemic planning but I honestly didn't think it would have the impact it did have <laughs> so we, we published it at six o'clock on a Saturday and it may there may have been an element of people were at home in lockdown possibly hitting their first glass of wine for the evening but this story went completely mad people were really really angry about it and and the next morning I was getting phone calls from the health minister, you know, I, and internally as well, people were a bit circumspect. But also, some readers were like, what are you doing? We're in a pandemic. Why are, you, why are you being so critical? But I held my nerve, and I have to say that now, the received wisdom of what happened back then is what we set out in that report, and nobody's trying to suggest anything else. But it, it was interesting how there was a slight sort of... Uh, particularly because I think the pandemic was so new and challenging, some people felt that it was inappropriate for us to go so, well, to, to do our job, which was to hold those in power to account. So, Monaco's editorial director, Tyler Brule, in conversation with the editor of the Sunday Times, Emma Tucker, at our Quality of Life conference in Athens. Our next guest is Doro Globus, managing director and children's book author for David Zwarma Books. She stopped by Midori House to talk about her first children's title, Making a Great Exhibition. The book tracks the journey of artworks from the studio to the exhibition space and explains the varied roles of those involved in the process, from artists and curators to art handlers and museum guards. Here is the conversation between Doro and Monaco's Tom Edwards. Dora, look, the, the book is a, is a real thing of beauty and I always feel tremendously impressed with anyone who manages to get any kind of book under any kind of circumstances across the line. This is one such. <laughs> so congratulations, first of all. Oh, thank you so much. Um, before we talk about that, though, I, I just wonder if we take a step back and look at, you know, how we communicate the importance of culture to children and young people. I, I wonder almost whether the last 18 months where, you know, during lockdown, all these travails which are well documented... Has that really underscored in your mind the importance of doing exact, exactly that? We've never really had such a, a time where cultural sustenance has been so so important. I mean, do you, well, do, I don't know. Do you go along with yeah, that reading? Absolutely. Uh, as a mother of two children, I actually was constantly purchasing books, especially nonfiction, for my children throughout the lockdown to try to replicate the experiences that we weren't having out of the house. And we have found across the board, especially with illustrated books, but publishing in general, that sales have actually gone up during the pandemic. Um, once people sort of settled into the new lockdown life, they had perhaps money that they weren't using to go to museums and restaurants and were really craving an experience again with the artists and it makes sense that children would feel the same way. Um, now, but we should say that this book, although it's timely, it's not a reaction to the pandemic. Indeed, we spoke, we were just saying before, a frighteningly long amount of years ago about your plans in this sense. Tell us why this idea of bringing the bringing of an exhibition to life has been something you wanted to document in this way for such a long time. It's sort of many, there are many reasons for it, but I think the the real reason I wanted to make a children's book just in the beginning was that my six-year-old son, now six-year-old son, Tristan, 
pretty much asked me every day for about a year when I was going to make a book for him. And that really sparked something because he was interested in the process of my job and the different books that I brought home. And it was clear that he really craved something that would speak to him in the way that maybe our books speak to adults. So that was one reason. The other reason was really looking at the art world, looking at museums and galleries, and thinking about how to make them more approachable. I grew up going to museums and galleries all the time, and it was sort of second nature for me, but a lot of people still find these spaces intimidating. And I think if we start with children and we show how things work, that's a really good it felt like a good thing to do. <laughs> yeah, and we should say the book is kind of a primer on, well, obviously, the making of a great exhibition, but it goes, if you like, back to basics, and it sort of, you know, takes children or inquiring minds. To be honest, I know some adults who could do with reading this. <laughs> I won't name names. Um, but it kind of guides them through the process, right back to the fundamentals. You know, I just wonder how, how challenging is that to sort of address that question? And you ha- kind of have to look at what is art and how does the artist see I mean, those are questions that I'm sure people who are very practised in producing very many books, even for a young audience, would find almost too difficult to answer. And you do it with alacrity. What was the secret of addressing that? Well, thank you. That's very, very kind because it is, you know, interesting to try to write for, for this audience. But as you say, maybe a broader audience, which I can tell you a bit about after. We took the two artists. Uh, we decided that we would follow a sculptor and a painter throughout the process of making before we got to the exhibition. And I would say that I've been really influenced by British artist Bridget Riley's writings. And I've had the great privilege of going to museums with her and seeing her own work as well as other work. And she has a very good way of talking about looking and making that I think is really accessible. So I think some of that maybe comes across in the writing here. Yeah, I've had the, the privilege, I think, at uh, David's one itself, of having uh, listened to, to Bridget talk about her work, and it's she's extraordinary, and you can kind of... I don't know, there's also a bit of the, the, the pop and colour and luminousness of her work that's, that's on these pages. How did you set about, well, in terms of the team, you, yourself and Rose, the look? Because obviously, in some respects, that's almost as important as the words in a book about visual art. What was the process? Did you want to do something that was very true if you know what I mean was it important that it was that it popped and was exciting I don't know what was that process like I think for me the partnership was the most important part so I met with a few different illustrators this was a a really new way for me to work I'd never commissioned an illustrated book before and when I met Rose it was really almost like that instant friendship that instant we we both grew up in the art world. She's the daughter of an artist and I'm the daughter of a curator. And so I found that even in our initial conversation, we were just sort of speaking the same language. And so I think it was more about that trust in the conversation than it was about the tone. But this was really Rose Blake's illustrations are beautifully bright and colorful. And I think they appeal to both children from that brightness and accessibility, but also to the parents because they sort of feel a little more refined and grown up. And there's lots of little details to enjoy. And you'll know, I've, I've got a very inquisitive six-year-old as well who's oh. grilling me. And this thing of, you know, any entertainments, books, films that have the 
ability to draw adults in, to give you that knowing wink almost at the same time as conveying the information. This is a slightly facile question, and I was wondering whether I should ask it, but in the creation of the book, did you find, Dora, that you... I don't know if learned anything. Did you start to look even at some of these fund- very fundamental things? What is art? What's the artist? How does the practice work? Did you change your any preconceptions in that process? Was it? Do you, do you think you found a broader utility for yourself in in the process of doing this? That is a very interesting question. I would say that I surprised myself a little bit in how much I enjoyed writing about it, but I also realized how privileged I was to be surrounded by all of these experts through my through my job and working within an art gallery. So I sent PDFs of the pages with the art handlers to our, our operations team and different art handlers and there were a few really interesting comments. So in there's a spread where they're installing the exhibition and there had been a level leaning against the wall and our head of operations said to me, no, we would never lean a level against a wall because it would fall and knock the painting over. It always goes flat on the floor. And so Rose made that adjustment and things like that. So I was learning sort of... Um, more of the the sort of details of how it works but I'm always interested in all of the aspects like I'm in publishing but I like to see the works being uncreated and I like the fact that my office is within an art gallery so I get to see everything I don't know if that fully answers I think it it does it does very eloquently let's just talk a little bit about you know, the sort of art publishing world a little bit, a bit more broadly, if we take a step back. Tell us how this title, and I don't know what's in store, you know, other books for children and so forth, but how does that fit into the into the overall? Because, I don't know, has it, has it been a time, we talked a little about the pandemic context at the, at the top, you know, has it been kind of boom time for art publishing again because it's filling this void that's left by people's inability to travel to see works or visit exhibitions they might otherwise have done. What's the, how does the sort of business look overall? It's interesting because while with illustrated books, sales have been very strong, especially in the U.S., the publishers, like many industries, slowed down in what they were making during so much uncertainty. And so what we've been finding, of course, is a big move to to purchasing online. And that really is a shift in the way that people buy books because they have to know what they want in order to to buy it online, whereas traditional bookselling is all about promoting the new releases, getting them into booksellers' hands, and having that be the conversation. And so what we've been finding is our backlist is very strong. It's always been very strong, but within the pandemic, people know that they want a book on Donald Judd or they know they want a Kusama book rather than kind of what's new from David's Werner books. But I I think in despite that fact, it's interesting that, you know, there's been such a push to get all of this stuff online. I'm thinking, again, in terms of the resources for children's study, you will, I think, like me, have toiled through some of this over the last two years. When you hold a beautiful book in your hand, though, and I think that this is as true of a, I don't know what your target age is, but, you know, a four, five, six and up year old to an adult, you connect with the material in a completely different way. I mean, I, we don't need to kind of underline the importance of print products you know here at monocle we're so passionate about it. we have our own imprint and so on but there are probably some people who fall into that trap of thinking well yes but you could you could just pop this online and then everyone can see it that's great in terms of how democratic it is 
It's not the same though, is it? As having no, it in your hands. Absolutely not. And I was actually really lucky because we we print our books largely in Italy, and for a few various reasons, the lovely printers there agreed to do our children's book. And so our production manager, Jules, or head of production, Jules Thompson, said, oh, I'm making sure that all the background colors match and things like that that are really not done with children's books usually. It's just sort of they're just processed and not made in such a sort of perfect, beautiful way. So it was a real privilege to have that team of experts who are actually represented in the book as well. There's... um. A picture of the printing press for a book because I think this is one of many things even adults um, artists we work with we say okay we're gonna the book is gonna go to print and then it's like people think that they're the book is gonna come the next day because when you say I'm gonna print something you think about your little desktop printer and I can show you the page if you want but it's um, a huge machine in a big warehouse and it takes a long time and so I really wanted to show that element too and Rose kind of embarrassing not embarrassingly but sweetly <laughs> surprised me with uh, drawing me into the book which I wasn't quite expecting <laughs> uh, please with the rendering uh, yes, it's, it's very, very nice. <laughs> Good stuff. And I just wonder, you know, we talk about, you know, conveying these often quite complex ideas to, to, to young and inquiring minds. Is there a hope, I, I mean, this is quite a lofty goal, but why not pitch your your ambitions big, that it might help to aid in this demystifying more broadly of the art market? Because actually, there's also been a lot of chat in the last 18 months about, you know, the fact that so much of, you know, the work of galleries or great artists has been forced into these online realms, which have had this democratising effect. It's kind of opened things up. We've seen a huge increase in, you know, sales online against uh, traditional auction houses and so forth. Can this kind of educational piece aid in that wider process for young people so maybe it doesn't seem so... Because it can seem a bit forbidding and a bit mysterious. Was that part of the goal as well? I mean, that is a the huge, huge hope of mine, I think as you you probably know from your child that when kids are young they make art and it's just this natural thing to be creative and imaginative and I mean my kids are constantly sculpting and painting and drawing just on their own that's what they want to do and then at a certain point we stop emphasizing this creativity it slowly starts to get pulled away and I with this book I'm hoping to say look, all these people are creative. You don't have to be just the celebrity artist or, the, you know, the big name to make a contribution and to be creative. And that is is one hope. And then the other hope is really as an industry and many industries are doing some soul searching about who works for galleries, who works in museums, in addition to who visits museums. I thought, well, I grew up knowing about these jobs most people would have no idea. And so part of my hope is to to get broad distribution for this book and then have kids who just make it second nature that you could work at a museum and be creative and be an artist without being kind of, you know, at the top, the one sort of superstar successful artist. So as we look at kind of how we hire or how we attract a more diverse group of people to work in our industry I think it probably has to start younger than people ultimately want it's not sort of this quick fix it has to be this is how it works this is open to you 
children's books, career books for children are sort of the doctor and the firefighter and the astronaut, and that's just not realistic. So I'm trying to sort of play into all of those different elements. Well, I think it reveals the sort of the, the iceberg beneath that, the few who are visible above the surface very, very, very cleverly. Dora, just finally then, what about what's next? More children's books, expanding the imprint for the gallery, for the publishing division, or some industry-wide observations. What do you think, 21, as we head into 2022? Obviously, there's so many caveats. Who knows what's going to happen over the next few months? We'll probably be doing more homeschooling before <laughs> we know it. Don't say that. <laughs> well, you have, to, you have to prepare for the worst. Um, what, what are some observations you have about what, what some next steps might be? Well, I feel like this this book sort of lends itself quite nicely to a potential series. So if it if it does sort of appeal to people and sell well, I could see expanding it to, you know, making a great film, making a great play, making a great dinner, and that sort of idea of there's so much more um, once you peel back the curtain, there's all this stuff happening. And so that's sort of one angle that I'd like to go look into. And then 2022, actually, for David Zwerner Books, has a huge program. So we're kind of picking up. We had a sort of slightly smaller program in 21, and 2022 will be our most, the most books we've published. So we're kind of really following the gallery's lead. The gallery is really having all these fantastic exhibitions, and we're responding to that. Fabulous. Well, just remind us, uh, if people want to not just see it, but purchase it. What do they have to do, Dora? Go to your local independent bookshop, please, because um, especially post-pandemic or mid-pandemic, wherever we are, local bookshops are really struggling. They can order the book for you if you if they don't have it in stock or order from davidswarnerbooks.com as well. But I do really encourage going out and supporting local bookshops. We really need them they're beautiful <laughs> they're wonderful they're specially curated but the book is available worldwide distributed by Simon and Schuster and Thompson Hudson and it is 13 99 pounds there you go <laughs> a call to action and all the info um Dora thank you very much for coming to tell us more about it thank you Doro and her book making a great exhibition is out now And finally on the show, it's time to discuss Noema magazine, the beautiful yearly title published by the Bergram Institute. The ambitious title delves in several threads, from philosophy and geopolitics to technology and culture. To tell me about the highlights of their latest issue, I spoke to Noema's executive editor, Kathleen Miles. Well, Noema means thought or the object of thought in ancient Greek. And that is precisely our purpose as a magazine, is to collect thinkers who are writing about and researching the transformations shaping our world. So those big sweeping transformations include, of course, climate change, but also the future of capitalism, the future of democracy, something that we call the transformation of the human, which refers to the technologies that are changing what it means to be human uh, precisely or, or generally, not, not exclusively, but generally artificial intelligence and genetic engineering and uh, a couple other topics. But essentially the umbrella is we're looking at these, these big issues that are, are the challenges of the 21st century. And we're trying to commission writers and ideas who have solutions, um, who are adding to 
the conversation as we try to work ourselves out of some of these some of these dilemmas and try to evolve into a, a new era. Yeah, I think that's the in a nutshell. Well, and of course, it's a beautiful, you know, print title as well. But I know you have also a busy and great website. But tell us about the importance of putting this into this kind of this yearly edition of Noema. And correct me if I'm wrong, it's, an, it's a yearly publication, right? Yes, that's right. So online is a different story. But just for, for speaking of print, we publish once a year. And um, the reason why we, we print at all is, is a couple fold. One is for archival reasons, actually. You know, who knows what the state of, of the internet will be in hundreds or thousands of years. So by diversifying our mediums, we potentially lengthen the longevity of the ideas we're disseminating. And, and that longevity matters because as I spoke a moment ago, we are covering big sweeping issues uh, over hundreds and thousands of years. So in this sense, we're thinking like historians, which is appropriate since we publish a lot of historians and we aim to place many of our essays in historical context. And then of course, there's the obvious reason that reading something physical and having that tactile experience often allows the reader to sit with the material longer and retain it on a deeper level, which is especially relevant for our content because we do publish uh, longer form essays that are not always fun to read on your phone or online. And then we also commission spectacular original artwork for each piece. And viewing that art is a much richer experience in print. But once a year, you know, it's a couple of reasons for that. That frequency is, again, because we're covering these, these great transformations, our content tends to be pretty evergreen. So once a year makes sense in that way. We're not, in other words, we're not publishing content that's going to get stale that we need to, you know, get out in the next two months or it won't hold up. And so our annual edition is, it's a physical archive of some of our most noteworthy and evergreen pieces of the year. And our print issues are 200 pages each. So they're essentially small books and their design and artisan quality are meant to signal to the reader that we're not churning it out, that this is really standout content. And well, I mean, I think a lot of us have had the experience of falling behind our own print subscriptions. I know I have with, with too little time to read them all. So rather than having thinner, more frequent magazines stack up in neglected piles, we're promising our readers one not to be missed print edition a year on top of our online life, which is a different story. And that seems to be a trend, definitely, as well, kind of these more beautiful titles, but, you know, perhaps not as frequent. And I have to say, reading some of the articles, it does match print so much. For example, The Intelligent Forest, what a beautiful, what a beautiful piece and kind of slightly unexpected as well. I, I, I quite enjoyed that one. Uh, so, you know, tell us a bit some of the, the features that we will be able to see in that edition. Sure. Well, one is we got together the former California governor, Jerry Brown with the futurist Stuart Brand to discuss the theme. We have themes to our issues and then we have a bunch of content that's not according to those themes to, to provide variety within the print issues. But our theme is uh, planetary realism. And so Jerry Brown and Stuart Brand get together and they discuss the origins of planetary realism and what Brand calls whole earth thinking. Um, so we published that, that dialogue, it's really fascinating. Um, we also have a piece with Bill Gates's guru, the man he calls his guru, who is uh, Vaclav Smil, 
on shifting demographics and on how we need to curb upstream consumption and not just downstream emissions. You mentioned the piece by Suzanne Simard on how she's just done really exciting research that show how forests have elements of intelligence. And then beyond that theme, those are all kind of planetary themed, but we have others that are that are on our other our other areas of focus. One is um, an essay by Pallavi Ayar, who's Indian, and it's on why she'd rather be born a woman in China than India. And that's a fascinating examination of how the culture for women has evolved in the two countries, including how the Cultural Revolution has had a lasting impact on the role of women in China. We have, there's so many I could go on and on. We have a really convincing piece claiming essentially that artificial intelligence is making us more artificial and less intelligent, but that is coupled side by side with another piece. It's also really convincing that that argues the opposite, that AI is actually expanding our intelligence. And then we have pieces by Bruno Maceas, Mariana Mazzucato, Audrey Tang, James Lovelock, and others on everything from Bitcoin to online culture, and the housing crisis. So yeah, I think there's there's something for everyone in there. Yeah, definitely a lot to digest, which is which is fantastic. And tell us, uh, Kathleen, about the connection of the you know Berggren Institute as well, and what's the importance of Noema for that? Sure. So in addition to providing all the funding that we need, the Berggren Institute is also a source of ideas and expertise for us. And then what are we for them? We we help disseminate the ideas on the topics that the Institute is focused on. So while Noema is editorially independent, you will notice a lot of the topics that we focus on are also areas of focus for the Institute. So for example, one uh, overlapping area is what I referred to earlier, the transformations of the human. Another one is that both the Institute and Noema uh, focus on is the future of capitalism, where we we cover issues like universal basic capital as distinct from universal basic income, pre-distribution of wealth, uh, social housing innovations, and much more. And so within these various topics, the Institute offers fellowships each year to fascinating individuals studying the issues that it's studying. And those fellows in turn uh, contribute original essays based on their latest research for Noema, which means we get some really original material from them. And then beyond the fellows, the Institute staff researchers who are experts in these fields are a wealth of knowledge for us, uh, feeding us great story and writer ideas. So it's a very symbiotic relationship and, and we're, we're, you know, we're very privileged to have the Institute behind us. That was Kathleen Miles from Noema Magazine. Well, that's it for this week's show. My thanks as ever to our editor, Nora Hall. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fp at monaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at the same time. And of course, you can always listen to it again at monaco.com, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Blondie with Sunday Girl. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Yeah.